This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education X. Thank you for joining us. Over half of all K-12 students are learning online or in some remote setting far from the schoolhouse door. So say parents in an Education X survey released this past week. Oddly enough, learning online seems unconnected to the actual risk of COVID in the community. In fact, the more the COVID is spreading, the more likely kids are to be learning in school. So to discuss this and much more, I have with me today Michael Henderson, the survey director for the Education X survey that has found these interesting results. He's a professor at Louisiana State University and the director of LSU's Public Policy Research Lab. So Michael, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Michael, first of all, uh, what's the most important finding in the survey, would you say? To, to me, what stands out is just the, um, the I, I actually think it's just the sheer amount of, of remote learning um, that's happening. Um, or I should say remote attendance uh, in school that's happening and the gaps we see in that um, across um, different um, socioeconomic and, and racial groups. To me, I, personally, I found that to be the most um, intriguing finding. We, we suspected that might be happening and now we have you know some original survey data to show that different students are getting different opportunities to engage in their instruction. Well, um, to unpack that a bit, uh, I know we, and I worked with you on this project, so I'm going to say we, uh, but I know we divided things into three groups, uh, online, uh, hybrid, and in-person. So can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, exactly. That's that's what we did. We asked um, we asked uh, uh, parents about each each of their K twelve uh, students. So it wasn't just sort of a parent answering one question about their sort of family globally, but each specific child, which allows us to say uh, something about the percent of students in the U S who are engaged in, in different modes. Um, and so we we asked them if their uh, child, if this specific child attended uh, school, you know, at the school building in person, uh, full time. Um, or whether or not they were doing it entirely remotely. Um, it didn't necessarily have to be online, of course, but we, we just know from what's going on out there in, in schools and school districts that uh, students that are, are remote, participating remotely, it's, it's mostly happening online. Um, and then ask them, uh, you know, or do, is it some sort of hybrid format where maybe they do some remote, but they go to school some days a week. Um, and so that's how we, we got that. We were able to categorize across students how much um, attended uh, in different formats. It's only about 20% that are in this hybrid form. I was surprised at that. I thought there would be a lot more of that hybrid model than actually is the case. Right. It's sort of like, it seems like schools have, for the, for the most part, schools are either just sort of going all one way or all the other. Um, there is about a fifth of students who are in this hybrid model, but it is not, it is not particularly common. Um, it's much more likely that students are attending um, in person or especially remotely. We see that over half of, of uh, American so K-12. Over students. half are remote and about a quarter are in person, full in person. So who's going in person? Right. So the, the children that are more likely to be in person, these are, these are children that are coming from um, uh, more likely they're coming from higher income uh, households uh, and they're more likely to be uh, white children. Um, that are attending school um, in person and also uh, students at private schools are, are far more likely to be attending school in person than um, students in, in public schools, than students from low-income households or students from um, racial or ethnic minority groups. 
So how big is that disparity? Uh, we haven't put a number on that yet. What's the percentage online for those of higher income and those for lower income? Right. So for, for by income, it's a little over 40 percent, um, about 42 percent of students from higher income households are attending school in person. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's only 29 percent among low income households who are attending in person. A majority of both are attending. Um, uh, I'm sorry, that's that's the offering they have. It's actually 30 percent of high income that are attending in person and only 20, about 20 percent of low income that are attending in person. Um, a majority of low income, almost two thirds uh, attend remotely, um, and just under half of high income uh, children are attending remotely. But actually, low income people prefer remote education more, even if it's offered in person is offered to them, they still are more likely to go remotely. Isn't that the case? Have I remembered that correctly? Well, that's not, not, a, not exactly the, the, the case. There is, there is, it is true that low-income uh, families are um, more likely to be attending school um, remotely. Um, and they're, they're a little bit less likely to have been, to be attending at schools that gave them alternatives to attend um, in, in other formats. Um, but when given the choice, uh, it's close. It's pretty close. It's about like 71% and 72% for the other among high income, uh, high and low income families when they have the choice um, that the student is actually taking the in-person option. So this suggests that it's likely that the disparities between high income and low income in terms of their uh, access to, um, to in-person instruction is driven probably more by institutional decisions than family decisions. Well, you know, that's contrary to a lot of rhetoric that I hear. I hear all over the place that low-income minority people, is this true for minorities too? It's a little bit different when you look by race and ethnicity. There you do see a little bit of a gap. So um, uh, black children um, are, are when, when their, their families are given the, the choice um, at the child's school to enroll in, uh, in person versus some other mode, hybrid or remote, um, uh, black children are a little bit less likely to uh, have their parents opt them into the in-person model than for um, white or uh, Hispanic families. But I'll say it's still a majority. So for instance, uh, in, uh, white students, 76% uh, of white students who are attending a school where they have a choice between in-person and something else, 76% are taking the in-person option. Um, that's about true of 67% of Hispanic students and true of 56% of black students. So there is, a, there is less selection into in-person instruction among uh, black families when given the choice. However, it's it's still a majority of those given the, given the option are still choosing it. So there's a lot of uh, rhetoric out there that suggests that uh, minority low-income families really don't want their kids to go to school. They're afraid. And you're sort of saying, you know, that's really not the big story. The big story is they're not being given the opportunity to the that's same right. degree as higher income uh, white families. And that's, that's right. That's quite a story, really. I think that's, that's something to, to think about, because, um, you know, I think people want the best for their kids, no matter what their background is. And, and I, and we find that people think in person learning is a lot more desirable, right? We, we have not been converted to digital learning yet. That's right. That's right. We do find it, it is a little interesting because we and we can talk about this in a moment. We do ask these policy questions to parents about what they think about online instruction. But when we're talking about their individual children and how their children are participating and how they're 
assessing the quality of, of their children's experiences, we do find that parents are saying their, uh, their children who are attending in-person, um, they are more satisfied uh, and they, they, they don't think they're missing out on as much learning. Um, and they also just generally think that the schools are doing a better job at um, meeting not just the um, protecting the children from, from COVID, but also in, in, in uh, terms of uh, meeting, you know, academic goals or, you know, helping them maintain their social relationships and their emotional well-being. Uh, sort of across the board, uh, students that are attending in person have parents who are evaluating the schools more positively on those dimensions. So I found it especially interesting that uh, it was physical fitness and social relationships that they miss the most if they're online. If the kids are online, the parents are reporting, the biggest fall off we're seeing is not so much in their academics, although that's down too, but, but just their social life and their, and their, and their physical well-being is, is being affected, which I think is, is really genuinely important. Yeah, and it's, it reflects, you know, what we might guess about how these experiences are going. Um, you know, I, I mean, my own children uh, attended the beginning of the school year remotely, and they eventually transitioned in person, um, you know, later. And, you know, the, the hardest part on them was that they just didn't get as much activity and they didn't see their friends. You know, they'd see them on the screen from time to time. And so I think, and you can see that, and kids recognize that because that's parts of their, their lives that they experience at school. Um, and I think parents are recognizing that that loss that's particular among um, uh, students who are not able to attend or not attending in person. Well, listen, let's back up a bit here and talk about how we obtained all this information. Can, you know, we did two surveys. We did one in the spring and one in the fall. Can you sort of elaborate on that a bit as to who did we talk to, how we find them and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So this is this has been, um, you know, I, I think just in the time I've had over the years working with uh, Ed Education Next Survey, one of my favorite things about it is we we're always trying these cool new things to to um, uh, pay attention to specific samples or ask questions in interesting ways to really sort of get after what it is that we think is an interesting part of the conversation that's that's missing. So one of the things we were able to do this year, both in the spring and then again in the fall, was really focus on speaking to uh, parents who had children in, in grades K through 12. Uh, and the way we did this is we, we sampled those um, in the fall. We did this as well in the spring and the spring was connected to our regular survey. So there was also just sort of a general population sample then and we added our parent sample to that. So in the fall, what we did is we just gathered up a, a sample of, of parents who indicated they had a child um, that was in grades K through 12. Um, we got about a little over 2,100 of these parents in our sample, nationally representative sample of these parents, um, as well as oversamples of, uh, of uh, black parents, uh, Hispanic parents, parents with kids in charter schools and parents with kids in private schools. And of course, we wait to adjust for the oversamples. I think that's important to mention that, uh, you know, we got these oversamples of people that are ordinarily underrepresented in surveys, which is African-Americans, Hispanics, people sending their kids to private school, the charter school. So when we talk about these groups, we've got enough observations out there so that we really know what's happening to these groups and not just making some guesses on the basis of 100 or 200 observations. We've got several hundred observations. For that, the that, that's correct. We have several hundred observations in each of those groups, whereas if we did just sort of a straight national sample of parents of K-12 students, we would end up with very few cases, not enough to explore um, those subgroups, um, but we end up with uh, 
several hundred in each of those groups who were able to do some analysis for those subgroups. And then, of course, just with the, the sampling design and the weighting, the statistical weighting, we're also able to talk about sort of parents as a whole um, and, and, and their students as a whole. So that's, um, that's also important because some of our listeners may think that our, our, our results aren't valid for the population as a whole, but you as a survey director know how to fix the data in order to... <laughs> that's uh, correct. Well, we, that's right. We, we, <laughs> well, we partner for this project. We part, partner with um, a, a survey firm. Uh, it's a, Ipsos Public Affairs, and we use their knowledge panel. Um, which has been the, the, the approach we've used since the beginning of the survey back in 2007. And what's valuable about their approach, it is an online approach, but what they do that's different from a lot of other um, online uh, survey firms, uh, you know, because the concern is if it's online, well, you're going to reach people who have online access, but that's not the way Ipsos uh, approaches it with their knowledge panel. They, they actually start with what's called address-based sampling. So they're, they're essentially sampling residences, whether or not they have online access, whether or not they have a telephone, whether or not they have cell phones. And they approach those residences and they approach the people that live there and they ask them to participate in what they call their knowledge panel for, you know, a couple years and take surveys every couple months or so or a couple surveys a month. And, um, and if they don't have access, internet access, or the devices with which to participate online, they provide both the access uh, to the internet and a device on which to do their survey. So we, they're able to really get to a probability sample of Americans. And then from that, we're able to take a probability sample of parents and then probability over samples of charter school parents and private school parents and black parents and Hispanic parents. And so then, we have a representative sample here. When we give these results, we can be fairly confident that we're not that far off from uh, what the reality is out there. So let me ask you about the change from last spring to this fall. What, uh, what the fact that we did this twice is gives us a sense of, you know, the first time out the door, I think it was May. So schools had just shut down. Second time it was what, November? Uh, That's correct. So, okay, what happened between May and November? I think yeah, so in terms of the song the, about that, isn't there a Sinatra song about that <laughs> song? Yeah, so we have a September song poll here, May and November. Yeah, yeah so there, um, there, there are some consistencies and then there are some differences. So when you're looking at the experiences that students have and how parents are assessing those experiences, um, we do see some change in experiences, uh, particularly among um, students who are participating entirely remotely. Um, now we wanna be careful about this because the, these samples aren't gonna be exactly the same because as you recall in the spring, essentially everybody was remote at that point. The schools were closed and so everybody was remote. Some schools were doing it better than others. Um, and then now in the fall, we've got some students who are still in a remote uh, uh, mode and then others who are not. But if you compare the students who are, are participating remotely now versus the students for everybody who was participating remotely back in the end of last school year, what it looks like has happened is schools um, have and teachers have gotten better in, ter in terms of certain things like uh, how frequently they're engaging students um, online, how much contact they're having with their students online, how much feedback they're giving their students online. So it looks like um, again, we, we got to be careful how we say this because we don't know, you know, there's selection processes where some students have moved online and schools might be doing different things. But students who are participating remotely now, um, although parents tend to not necessarily be big fans of that uh, always, uh, it, that we, they are saying that their, their schools are engaging their children more than they were in the spring. So we've seen improvements there. Um, but overall, if you look at how parents are evaluating uh, their students' instructional experiences, 
there's not tremendous differences in terms of just sort of overall satisfaction and also perceptions about whether or not their, their children are learning as much as they would if we weren't in this pandemic situation. Um, those numbers have been, there's a little bit of shifts, but those numbers have been pretty stable. Um, so we're not seeing big shifts there. The other place where we do see some interesting shifts are we asked parents sort of after we asked them about each of their children, we also asked them these policy questions such as things like, hey, you know, do you, you know, basically essentially questions that measure their support for online instruction and virtual instruction as a, as a sort of a policy to, to provide. And we are seeing some increases in support and we saw some increases in support from past years to the spring and we've seen some increases from the spring till now. Um, so even though parents seem to have some reservations about their own children's online experiences now, their overall support for allowing or incorporating virtual instruction into the selection of education policies, that seems to be on the rise. So they seem to have a rel relatively balanced set of ideas here. It's sort of like we all think about Zoom. Zoom is not as good as being in-person conversation, but it's not bad. And, that, and that's probably what parents have been saying, you know, it's, it's better now this fall than it was last spring. And it's not as great as being in person, but it's not terrible. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's perfectly consistent with what we're seeing in the data on, on these survey responses. Um, they're, they're overall, you know, parents are hanging in there. Um, they, but they're, they are seeing deficiencies, um, but they're not just sort of up in arms saying this, this remote instruction has been a just terrible. Well, idea. Let's, let's talk a bit about this COVID spread uh, because uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, surprising. You would think that you'd have un more online learning where the COVID is, is getting worse and, and less of it where, where things aren't so bad, but we're almost seeing the opposite. So can you lay that out a bit for folks? Absolutely. So we did this in two ways. We looked at, well, um, we looked at um, how responses compare to, uh, because a lot of these decisions about modes and what modes would be offered at a school were made earlier on in the school year. So we looked at the sort of overall, you know, level of COVID incidents um, by, the by the time of the school year to see if uh, places that had had experienced more, uh, you know, higher levels of, of a COVID outbreak um, at, by the start of the school year were, you know, more likely or less likely to offer in-person or remote options and parents or children to be attending in these different modes. And we have essentially found no, no differences across levels of the extent of the outbreak of COVID at the start of the school year and what- oh, On opening day, it was happening across the country, but not related in any way that we could tell to where COVID was and where COVID wasn't. That's right. If you were in a community where there was a higher level of COVID, you, you, it was just as likely that your school either would or wouldn't offer in-person instruction and that you would attend in-person or not as, as if you lived in a community with very relatively few um, cases of, of COVID. So that was the start of the year. So the second way we looked at this is then we looked at sort of the recent levels of outbreaks, the recent trends sort of in November as the survey was going into the field in the communities, the local communities that these respondents live in. We, we, that's one of the benefits of the way we've done the survey is we know, um, you know, we know the communities in which they live. Uh, so we're able to match it to data, health data, public health data on incidents of COVID in their, in their local areas. Um, and so what we find there is this is where we find that it's sort of the opposite of what you might I don't know, hope for. Um, we, we see that in places where 
there are higher higher incidents of COVID. There's more. COVID is expanding. It's you know the outbreak is happening faster. Um, in in recent weeks, at the time of the survey, we're seeing district that's going that's in places where schools are more likely to be offering the in-person option and where students are more likely to be enrolled in the in-person option. So it's sort of the opposite of what we would sort of want from a public health perspective. Why do you think that is? Uh, we don't know for sure, like exactly why it is. There could be a few things going on here. I mean, it could be related to, um, like I said, many of these decisions were being made earlier in the school year. And if things look different at that time, maybe they're just not adapting and updating their decisions either as parents or as school inst inst institutions um, with what's going on. Um, it could be just that places that are more likely to have in-person might also be in communities that are more likely to have, you know, lax measures in terms of curbing the mitig uh, mitigating the spread of COVID. So, Michael, I, my view of it is that it's, it's the rural areas that are keeping in-person learning. There's some suggestion from other studies that this is in-person is more available in rural areas and less available in urban areas as urban areas are going remote. And the COVID spread in November was moving into rural America. It, it was basically on the coasts initially, you know, Los Angeles, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey. And then as the COVID spread continues, especially over the summer, but especially in the fall, it really starts to move to South Dakota, North Dakota, and a lot of rural places uh, throughout the United States. So I, what do you think? Is that, 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 that's, would not, we don't really have definitive information on that, but we could probably get it, right? Yeah, so that is, I would say the results we have at this point are consistent with that idea that what's happening here is um, the places that we're seeing the highest outbreaks at that time, or like you said, it's places like in the Dakotas, um, which were places that were more likely to have had uh, in-person instruction um, at that point. And so we're seeing the COVID outbreak reach into places that um, were have, already having their schools open for in-person instruction. So now we also see a lot more in-person instruction in the private sector than either the charter sector or the district sector. So are students leaving the district schools for the private schools? What's, uh, what, is there any sign of that in our data? Yeah, there is. And again, I think we have to be a little bit careful with what, we, what, we're, what we're seeing here, um, because I think, uh, to be honest, I think that there's some parents who are just not sure how to answer exactly how they're, what kind of school their, their child is, is attending, given the fact that they're muddling through all these different kinds of modes. But I think the data we have is pretty clear that we're seeing significantly fewer uh, uh, children, uh, um, parents saying that they are, they're enrolled in a, in a district public school. Um, and that seems to be consistent with some other evidence that we've seen and heard from other places that it looks like um, uh, parents are seeking out um, options for other schooling, uh, other modes of schooling. And, and this, you know, the fact that we're seeing high rates of in-person instruction among private schools is at least suggestive that, you know, parents who are particularly interested in securing in-person instruction and have the means to do so are turning to private schools where they have that option rather than their local district school that may not be offering it. Well, we have um, some evidence that there's a lot more homeschooling too, although who knows what homeschooling means, but didn't we double the percent? No, that's a very small percentage, so it's a tricky thing, but 
didn't we double the percentage of homeschoolers? Yeah, about that. We are, like you mentioned, it's, there's some caution here because it's, a, you know, we're dealing, we're dealing with, uh, you know, single digit percentages. And so, you know, movements can, it's a lot, it can look like a big, bigger, big movement. Um, but it's, you know, it's, we are seeing, we did see an increase in the share of people who are saying, the share of students whose parents are saying they are homeschooled. Um, and again, it's hard to tease this out and whether this is uh, parents who have actually withdrawn their children from local schools to go through a, you know, actual formal homeschooling program versus parents that may just be interpreting remote instruction as homeschool. Uh, but it is, I mean, it's noticeable. This is not just a blip. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, given the small size of how, where we start with, it's a significant jump um, relative to the, the starting place in terms of students. Well, the real question is, is this going to, is this going to remain intact? Uh, so are we going to be able to tell people what's going to happen in the longer term about uh, all of these developments? Is this going to leave a permanent uh, um is this going to transform the landscape of American education? Has is, is COVID a defining moment in American education? What would you say to that? That's a yeah, I mean, question, but what would you say? Right, I would I would caution a wait and see approach. We're definitely seeing people respond to what's happening now, right? So we're seeing and we're seeing. We talked earlier about support for you know virtual uh, school policies. Um, and seeing increases in that. There's also some signs, I mean, they're much more modest than what we see with virtual schooling, but there's some signs that people are, um, you know, uh, rating their local schools more positively than they did a year ago, um, rating the teachers in their local communities more positively than they did a year ago. These aren't huge differences, but they're real differences. Um, and so, you know, that could just be sort of like a, you know, hanging in there kind of thing. And once we're sort of back to normal, then everything goes back to normal. Or it could be part of a more permanent shift where people are open to the idea of virtual schooling. I will say what the increases we've seen in attitudes towards virtually virtual schooling are consistent with an upwards trend we were seeing before COVID. So this might build on that. And, and, and there I would expect something more. But even that is hard to say for sure, because we are seeing that parents feel kind of mixed about it. Like they're, they're willing to live with it. Um, but they also see real deficiencies that their children who are participating remotely are, are having. So um, thank you so much, Michael, for uh, leading this uh, really important survey. And uh, uh, I've already heard from people who say that uh, the, the, the results are just uh, quite fascinating. And uh, that's my own reaction. So uh, thank you much for, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Michael Henderson, the survey director for the Education X survey entitled Pandemic Parent Survey Finds Perverse Pattern. Students are more likely to be attending school in person where COVID is spreading more rapidly. Professor Henderson teaches at Louisiana State University as the director of LSU's public policy research lab. So uh, thank you, Michael, again, for, for joining me. Thank you, Paul. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.